0: Welcome to NTD News Today, I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. Former President Trump's team and the Justice Department submitting their picks today for a special master. This, as the DOJ appeals the court's decision to allow Trump, a third party attorney, to review what the FBI seized from his home. It will soon be the 21st anniversary of the 9-11 terrorist attacks. What has happened in the last 21 years? We bring you a synopsis. And 21 years later, the alleged architect of the terrorist attacks has not been tried in court yet. The families of victims share their feelings. And morning bells toll across Britain to honor the passing of Queen Elizabeth. Gunfire displays come ahead of the funeral and the proclamation of the new king. Today's the day the Justice Department and former President Trump's legal team must submit suggestions for a special master. The third-party attorney would review materials the FBI seized at Mar-a-Lago. NTD's Jessica Beatty has more.
1: Trump's team and the government have until 5 p.m. Friday to submit their list of names for special master. If a common name comes up, the judge could appoint that person, according to Fox News. If not, the judge is expected to ask them to try to agree on a name. If they cannot agree, the judge can appoint someone herself. On Monday, the judge granted Trump's request for a special master to review materials the FBI seized, including records deemed classified, records covered by attorney-client privilege, and Trump's personal records, which Trump says include tax records, medical paperwork, and other personal items. The DOJ Thursday said it's appealing the court order for a special master. At issue are the more than 100 classified documents the FBI seized last month. The DOJ's arguing a special master is not necessary and that handing the documents over could breach national security. Monday's court order granting the special master stopped the DOJ from accessing the documents, but the intelligence community is allowed to continue its assessment. Meanwhile, Trump Thursday slammed the DOJ for appealing the case. On True Social, he said, the FBI and DOJ are, in his words, going to spend millions of dollars and vast amounts of time and energy to appeal the order on the Raid of Mar-a-Lago document hoax instead of fighting the record-setting corruption and crime that's taking place right before their very eyes. Since the FBI's Mar-a-Lago search, news outlets have published claims that Trump had nuclear secrets or highly sensitive material at his home. But in the DOJ's affidavit, and FBI search warrant there's no mention of nuclear secrets or weapons. The DOJ and FBI haven't publicly commented on the claims. Trump said in August the nuclear weapons claims are a hoax. NTD's contacted the DOJ for comment. Jessica Beatty, NTD News.
0: This Sunday marks 21 years since the 9-11 terror attacks in 2001. Let's take a moment to look back at what's happened since that day.
2: Almost 3,000 people were killed on September 11, 2001, when Al-Qaeda terrorists hijacked four commercial planes and crashed two of them into the World Trade Center in New York, another into the Pentagon, and a fourth one into an open field in Pennsylvania. Thousands more were exposed to the toxic fumes when the World Trade Center went down. Many of them were first responders and people living near Ground Zero, who still suffer from related illnesses including cancer. Between 2001 and 2004, the federal government granted $7 billion in compensation to families of 9-11 victims and injured people. President Obama renewed the funding twice during his time in office, and President Trump signed a law renewing the compensation fund all the way through 2092. And for 20 years following 9-11, the U.S. was engaged in war against terrorists in Afghanistan. But the final withdrawal in August of last year was far from peaceful. The Taliban retook control of Afghanistan as the U.S. withdrew. An ISIS-K suicide bomber attacked the Kabul airport during the withdrawal, killing 13 U.S. service members and over 200 others. U.S. troops also had to deal with an unexpected number of Afghan civilians flooding the Kabul airport, hoping to catch a flight out of the country. And on August 30th, 2021, the last U.S. troops left Afghanistan, evacuating over 120,000 people and ending the 20-year war. Roughly a year following the withdrawal, the House Armed Services Committee released an assessment of the U.S. presence in Afghanistan last month. The committee argued against being in Afghanistan for another 20 years. They wrote, quote, "...sustaining America's military presence for 20 more years would not have resulted in the creation of an independent Afghan government that could provide for the security of the people of Afghanistan." Following the withdrawal, Congress established the Afghanistan War Commission to assess U.S. involvement in Afghanistan from 2001 to 2021.
0: And 21 years later, the alleged architect of the attacks still has not been tried in court. Family members of victims are speaking up about how that makes them feel. Here's that story.
3: Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who the 9-11 Commission considers the architect of the 9-11 attacks, has not been tried in court yet even though he was captured almost 20 years ago. Mohammed was apprehended in Pakistan in 2003 after being wanted for numerous acts of terror. Pre-trial hearings were scheduled for this fall, but they were canceled just last month. Eddie Bracken, a carpenter whose sister was killed at the World Trade Center in the attacks, said he's frustrated about the situation.
4: It's the greatest impact on my life, knowing that somebody had killed your family and you can't do nothing about it and leave it up to the United States and let them figure out how and when and why.
3: But he also says he understands the delays and focuses on the fact that Mohammed has spent nearly two decades in military custody. According to legal experts, reasons for the delays are an overly complicated system and the government's secrecy surrounding the issue, which leads to even more complications and delays. Gordon Haberman, a Wisconsin man whose 25-year-old daughter Andrea was killed in the attacks, said the delays in justice leave him and other families frustrated. Haberman has traveled to Guantanamo four times.
5: I have to know. I I promised her I would follow this through to the end, and Guantanamo's uh, one of those avenues.
3: He said he's also following civil litigation in New York federal court aimed at holding those responsible for the attacks financially liable. And more on
0: 9-11. Our next guest is a veteran with 28 years in military service. He helps us look back on that fateful day. Joining us now to reflect on the 9-11 terrorist attacks and the war on terror that followed is retired Army Lieutenant Colonel Darren Galb. He's a former Black Hawk helicopter pilot and battalion commander and the co-founder of Restore Liberty. Thank you for coming on the show today, Darren.
6: Hey, thanks, Kevin. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Can you start by telling us where you were on September eleventh, two 2001 and what stuck out to you the most during the immediate aftermath?
6: Sure. Yeah, I was in uh, Fort Carson, Colorado as a at a school on post there and uh, we had all come out of the classroom and frankly nobody really knew that it had happened but we all looked at the TV and were, were shocked at what we saw. We're like, you had to be convinced it was real. It's just one of those things that you're like, you're not sure is real until a little time develops. But I think what stuck out to me the most was actually the the part where we were all sent home immediately because they didn't know what they were dealing with and it was best to leave the post uh, for Carson itself empty or mostly empty and uh, I went home and my wife and kids were there and a, and a bunch of neighbors and they I think that's one of the things that was critical to me that stuck out to me was that in times of crisis people look to organizations that they trust and the military has always been one of those organizations and they were all looking at me going well What's next? You know, I could tell them I, I didn't know, but the best thing to do was just you know stay on stay on firm ground and trust that uh, you know the truth would come out and that eventually that we would do something. I was certain of that.
0: Yeah, just so much uncertainty on that day, and the nation changed on 9/11, and we we're also able to see what it truly means to be united. What's your perspective on this?
6: Yeah, what a difference 20 years can make, right? I mean, it's uh, it's strange to think about the fact that when this first happened, it, it was over two decades ago now. Uh, and you saw a nation that came together and rallied behind what we would call a common enemy or common foe. And, and 20 years later, as the you know, a nation at war turned into more of a Department of Defense at war, while well, most of the nation had moved on, we see this division today that, in many cases, I would argue is in, is intentional in some cases but uh, also needs to be uh, something that we need to revisit again. is like, what does it mean to be a United States and not a divided states 20 years after 9-11 that united us in the first place?
0: Yes, and when was your first deployment after 9-11 and how many deployments have you done during your career?
6: Well, actually the first deployment after 9-11 was uh, to North Africa. We went to Egypt for a multinational NATO exercise and that was two weeks after 9-11 happened. So you can imagine how the rumors spun back home about where we really were and what we were really doing. Well, we were taking part in that exercise, but uh, as soon as we got back, um, shortly thereafter, we moved to Fort Drum, New York and deployed to Afghanistan for the first time in 2003 in Kandahar.
0: And what was your time like in Afghanistan?
6: Well, each of the deployments was, was different in its own right, different jobs, but you know, being an intelligence officer, being in a company commander the second time, and, uh, flying all over Northeast Afghanistan, third time being a strategist and developing a, you know, an orders and strategies for an entire country, and then going back there again and spending most of my fourth and final deployment watching the country get drawn down, and spending, frankly, almost nine months at night flying night missions. Uh, it's just interesting to see the country change from 2003 to 2013.
0: Yes, absolutely. Now, America went to war in October 2001. What can we learn from the war on terror in hindsight?
6: Well, there's are, there are always many things we can learn, uh, and the military is always learning, even at the tactical level soldiers on the ground and how they do their business. But we, as a nation, have to keep remembering that uh, you know, forced democracy is, is not democracy. Uh, a constitutional republic like the United States, the model and the people that are here and how things are done here, CAN'T JUST BE INJECTED OVERSEAS IN A NATION LIKE AFGHANISTAN, WHOSE CULTURE IS SO SIGNIFICANTLY DIFFERENT. Uh, NOT ONLY THAT, WE CAN'T BUILD NATIONS. WE SHOULDN'T WANT TO BUILD NATIONS. WE SHOULD HAVE A VERY NARROW MISSION. AND THEN WHEN THAT MISSION IS COMPLETED, WE SHOULD BE WILLING TO STEP ASIDE AND COME HOME AND BE LIKE, THEY NEED TO DECIDE THEIR OWN FUTURE. AND THE LAST THING I WOULD ARGUE IS THAT WE NEED TO MAKE SURE THAT WHEN WE AS A NATION GO TO WAR, THE ENTIRE NATION IS BEHIND THE MILITARY. BECAUSE We can have the greatest technology, the greatest soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines, and things like that, but if the entire nation and the weight of the people are not behind them the entire time, then uh, we'll stumble and fall too, because the military needs the people of America to be behind them.
0: Very good to hear your perspective. Retired Army Lieutenant Colonel Darren Galb, great to speak with you today.
6: Thanks, Kevin. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Going overseas, gun salutes were fired and bells tolled across Britain today. The displays of honor mark the passing of Queen Elizabeth II. She passed away Thursday at 96 years old after 70 years of service and with the title of Britain's longest reigning monarch. The news has drawn condolences from around the world. Buckingham Palace said the family and members of the royal household will observe a period of mourning. It's set to last until a week after the funeral. The service is expected in about 10 days' time, but a date hasn't been confirmed. King Charles III will officially ascend to the role of Britain's new monarch on Saturday. That's during a meeting of the Accession Council at St. James's Palace in London. The event will involve two parts, proclaiming the new sovereign and having the king sign an oath to uphold the security of the church in Scotland. Afterward, a ceremony from the balcony overlooking Friary Court at St. James's Palace will be held at 10 a.m. local time. Other announcements from the new monarch will be made across the U.K. and in London. As the world comes to terms with the death of Queen Elizabeth II, there are questions about the future of the Commonwealth of Nations, which she was instrumental in creating. She regarded it as one of her proudest achievements. Here's that story.
7: The Commonwealth of Nations evolved out of the British Empire. Now it's one of the world's biggest international organizations, made up of 54 countries, covering some 2.5 billion people. Britain's Queen Elizabeth was instrumental in creating it, and it was one of her proudest achievements. But, now that the Queen's reign has come to an end, what does the future of the Commonwealth look like?
8: I think perhaps the Commonwealth has historically run its course, Um, and what you're really seeing now is the the ghost of an organisation.
7: Commonwealth members range from wealthy nations such as Britain, Australia, New Zealand and Canada to populous India, as well as tiny Pacific republics such as Nauru. Supporters see it as a network for fostering international cooperation and trade links, while promoting democracy and development. That's why when Barbados cut its ties with the British monarchy to become a republic in 2021, it was keen to remain part of the Commonwealth. Others say the organisation has become outdated and irrelevant.
8: The Commonwealth talks about the importance of promoting democracy, uh, tackling climate change, uh, tackling gender inequality. Um, But the Commonwealth isn't necessarily a logical framework internationally in which to, to deal with any of those problems. They don't stop at the borders of a Commonwealth state.
7: Another question the organisation will have to address is who will lead it. In 2018, Commonwealth leaders agreed that Elizabeth's son and heir Prince Charles, now King Charles III, should be her successor, although the role is not hereditary. And we'll decide that one day the Prince of Wales should carry on the important work started by my father in 1949. Barbados-based David Denny is the General Secretary for the Caribbean Movement for Peace and Integration.
8: We have removed the queen of head of state. So I don't think the queen should continue or her family should continue to be the head of the Commonwealth. I think the time has come for the Commonwealth nations to meet every year or every two years or every three years and elect who must be the head of the Commonwealth.
0: After Queen Elizabeth's passing, the Bank of England is planning to replace her likeness on banknotes with the next monarch's face. However, that's not a quick process. King Charles III is not just taking over the throne in Great Britain, but British banknotes as well. According to Fox News, the Bank of England will recall banknotes and coins with the Queen's face on them in order to replace them. The process is expected to take around two years. There are no concrete plans yet, and the bank says money with the queen's face on it will still be accepted. The late queen's profile is also depicted on legal tender in Canada and Australia. It's not clear yet how these countries will proceed. And still to come, firefighters are struggling with several wildfires in California. Conditions are making it hard for them to contain the fires, and communities remain under threat. And a company employs blind people to make parts for the aerospace industry and the jobs do more than just pay the rent for these workers stay tuned for more right after the break california firefighters are struggling to control raging wildfires in the state thousands of residents have been forced to flee mountain communities In Northern California, the Mosquito Fire burned out of control, scorching at least 20 square miles and threatening 3,600 homes in two counties. A fire spokesperson called the fast-moving blaze an extreme and critical fire threat. About 100 miles to the east, the Nevada Division of Environmental Protection issued a warning to the Reno area. It said that air quality could be very unhealthy or even hazardous due to smoke from the Mosquito Fire. The deadly and destructive Fairview Fire in Southern California expanded in two directions on Wednesday, covering more than 30 square miles of Riverside County. It's just 5% contained. Another dangerous blaze burned near a resort region in the mountains east of Los Angeles. and has burned two square miles. The extreme heat in the region has contributed to the spread of the fires. To combat the spread of fires, the US Forest Service plans to focus on prevention. They're restarting the regimen of intentionally burning areas of forest. The burnings are not without risks, but here's what Chief Randy Moore says.
9: We just need to do our due diligence and making sure that the models that we're using are appropriate. That we recognize that the changing conditions in our environment are being considered in how we plan and implement these prescribed burning. So, prescribed fire is an important tool, it's a key tool for us. And, you know, let's face it, we, we have a crisis
6: out there on our landscapes.
0: The Forest Service paused prescribed burnings for three months after one of the fires burned over 500 square miles in New Mexico. Since then, they've been reviewing the risk of runaway fires in severe weather conditions. The Forest Service chief says they have standardized their procedure and added new safeguards. He adds that the agency won't back away from intentional burns because it's a crucial tool. The fires clear up the buildup of combustible material on forest floors and grasslands. You will soon designate someone at the national level to oversee the new requirements and tactics. The anticipated changes also include measures that might incentivize better forest management and create local jobs. From fire to wind and water, Tropical Storm K will drench parts of the west coast Friday. K currently has winds reaching up to 60 miles per hour. It's located a little more than 200 miles outside of San Diego. The most recent forecast track shows K weakening before it heads offshore Saturday. Officials say Southern California and parts of Arizona will likely see heavy rain and winds. Some spots could get up to 8 inches of rain throughout the weekend. In other news, a new report on a Supreme Court leak investigation is coming. That's according to Justice Neil Gorsuch speaking during a judicial conference in Colorado Springs. He didn't provide other details, like whether the report will be available to the public, and did not take questions. As for what was leaked, a Politico published a draft opinion of the Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization case on May 2nd. It was the first draft opinion to be made public, though the case was still being debated. Politico said it received a copy from a person familiar with the court's proceedings. Justice Samuel Alito authored the document. He said he found the court's 1973 Roe v. Wade decision was wrongly decided. Chief Justice John Roberts confirmed the authenticity of the leak and directed the court's marshal to investigate the source. The final decision in Dobbs was to strike down Roe v. Wade. The FBI is looking for information on its most wanted fugitive, Michael James Pratt. Now the Bureau is offering a $100,000 reward to get it. Pratt is the co-owner of San Diego-based pornography website GirlsDoPorn.com. The Justice Department charged him with sex trafficking, sex trafficking of a minor, and producing child pornography, as well as fraud and coercion. He allegedly helped recruit young women and girls by offering three dollars to $5,000 for one-day adult video shoots. The FBI accuses him and others involved of locking women in rooms and forcing them to engage in sex acts that they declined. Pratt's co-owner of Girls Do Porn, Matthew Isaac Wolf, faced trial in July. He pleaded guilty to sex trafficking and other offenses. According to Wolf, Pratt ran a related website on the side. It was used to expose and identify women who appear in pornography videos. A special agent in charge with the FBI's San Diego office called locating Pratt a high priority for the FBI. Authorities are asking anyone with information to reach out to 1-800-CALL-FBI or submit a tip online at tips.fbi.gov. Turning to the Boy Scouts, the organization has to pay more than $2.4 billion to sexual abuse survivors, but they're bankrupt. A judge in Delaware has approved the organization's plan to pay up. The organization owes that money to more than 82,000 survivors who suffered abuse over decades. Most of the money is going to come from insurance companies, but some of it will also come from the Methodist Church and the Boy Scouts organization. The plan also calls for the Boy Scouts to implement safety measures to prevent future abuse. The ruling is expected to be the end of the Boy Scouts of America's bankruptcy proceedings. Now on to some generosity in education. Princeton University plans to cover all the costs that come associated with college for families making under $100,000. The plan includes free tuition, housing, and food. The school's president said a defining value of the school is a commitment to ensure talented students can afford a Princeton education. He said improvements to the school's aid packages are made possible by alumni and friends. The policy takes effect for undergraduates in the fall of 2023. The school expects 25% of undergraduates to qualify. That's about 1,500 students. The current cost to attend Princeton is almost $80,000 a year. 62% of students enrolled now receive financial aid. The average aid package covers around $60,000 in costs. After the new program rolls out, families making over $100,000 will still have the opportunity for smaller aid packages. Now we bring you a safety alert from the FDA. There are reports of cancers found in scar tissue around breast implants. The agency has received 22 reports so far this year. The condition is rare and the FDA says it still doesn't have enough information to make a solid determination. 10 of the reports are about a type of skin cancer and 12 are about various cancers related to lymph nodes. The FDA says in some of the cases, patients were diagnosed years after getting the breast implants their symptoms included swelling pain lumps and skin changes the agency is asking doctors and people with breast implants to continue to report cases the FDA added new restrictions and warning labels for breast implants in 2021 they're offering more specific safety recommendations on their website and a nonprofit organization in Washington state is dedicated to helping the blind and the deaf blind to live productive lives They have offered training skills and employment since 1918. Let's take
9: a look. The world hasn't made it easy for John Ramish to keep a job. The 59-year-old identifies as deaf-blind and uses an interpreter to communicate. But then he joined a century-old manufacturing shop in Seattle, Washington that gave him independence and empowerment. Ramish says he's been happily employed there for 25 years.
10: My old job, I was laid off four different times. And that was when I was living in Oregon State. And so I tried to apply for the Seattle Lighthouse for the blind. And I went through the interview process, and they hired me. And I just stayed. I never was laid off. Um, I haven't been fired. And my vision has changed over the time where I'm not able to see as much. So I really want to stay and continue to work until I retire. I think it's worth it. There's really great benefits for me, and I'm really happy here.
9: The Lighthouse for the Blind employs the highest number of blind people west of the Mississippi River, as well as the most deaf-blind people in the entire country. The parts that this team manufactures go everywhere, from canteens to the aerospace industry, using specifically tailored equipment.
10: You know, another example is I'm running this job, and if there's any issues, what I do is I'll use this call button and it makes a sound and a light and it flashes until my lead or supervisor is able to come help me problem solve.
9: Lighthouse COO Pat O'Hara says that in the U.S., up to 70% of blind, deafblind and blind people with other disabilities are unemployed. He believes his nonprofit is a genuine benefit to industry and the proud workers
2: it's given them an opportunity to hold their head high and do something that you know not everybody would expect you to be able to do as a blind person manufacturing airplane airplane parts
9: for dan porter who calls himself legally blind the work goes beyond an occupation it's given him a new vision for the future
3: working at the lighthouse i was able to meet my wife here uh, and i was able to buy my first home The greatest satisfaction that I get out of my job is to help others grow in this trade. If it wasn't for other people helping me grow in the trade,
5: I wouldn't be where I'm at today.
0: NASA says it has two new launch dates in mind. That's for its next attempt at sending up its massive new moon rocket on an uncrewed test mission. Those dates are September 23rd and September 27th. The two new possibilities come after two scrubbed launches last week over technical issues. NASA is trying to fix a leaky fuel problem with the rocket. It's also seeking a waiver on a rule requiring the batteries of the flight termination system be recharged at a nearby indoor facility before the new launch dates. The Artemis One mission is the start of a program that aims to return people to the moon and eventually land crewed missions on Mars. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And still to come, North Korea passes a law allowing it to use preemptive nuclear strikes. This comes after years of denuclearization talks. And a new report shows massive DNA collection is going on in Tibet, even in remote villages, and saying no is not an option for the Tibetans. Find out more right here on NTD News. Welcome back. North Korea is reaffirming its status as a nuclear state after years of stalled denuclearization talks. State media report that Pyongyang passed a new law allowing themselves to use
9: preemptive nuclear strikes. Here's more. An original 2013 law first outlined North Korea's status as a nuclear state. It stipulated that the country could retaliate with nuclear weapons to repel an invasion or an attack from a hostile, nuclear-capable country. Now, the new law passed on Friday goes beyond that. If Pyongyang detects what they call an imminent attack by weapons of mass destruction against them, they've granted themselves the right to strike first. It's an apparent reference to a similar strategy that South Korea unveiled in July, aimed at North Korea. The North's leader, Kim Jong-un, said that was a sign of a deteriorating situation. He added that their new law bars any more denuclearization talks from happening, and declared the point of no return in a speech. President Joe Biden's administration has offered to return to talks with Kim, while South Korea's President Yoon seok Yeol has offered economic aid to Pyongyang if it agreed to denuclearize. Kim on Friday said he would never surrender the weapons, even if the country faced a hundred years of sanctions.
0: And now to the East China Sea. The U.S. Army's Pacific commander says there's no rush to withdraw equipment from a strategic Japanese army base.
6: Increasing the scale the complexity, the size, the duration of the training that our forces must do together is probably a worthy investment on both uh, the US and uh, the Japanese um, uh, forces. So if there's to be lessons taken from that one, it would be That sustainment is a key part of being able to uh, uh, have the endurance, the operational endurance, uh, for a protracted fight.
0: General Flynn's comments come after a visit to a Japanese military base. It's part of an island chain that hinders Beijing's easy access to the Pacific. There are two more joint training exercises scheduled at the base this year. That means that equipment could remain on the island chain for several more months. That includes two highly accurate rocket systems that can fire projectiles to a distance of 310 miles. Washington has also given this system to Ukraine to fight Russia. The Camp Amami base opened in 2019. It's one of a string of new bases Japan is building on its southwest islands to deter attacks by the Chinese regime. Joint training exercises in Japan are seen as quick ways for Washington to redeploy some forces in East Asia as tensions with Beijing over Taiwan increase. Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida has defended his position regarding a state funeral for former Japanese leader Shinzo Abe. He called such a funeral fitting given Abe's achievements as Japan's longest-serving premier. Kishida made those remarks during a parliamentary session to debate the event, which is set to cost about $12 million. Concerns have been mounting around these costs. Japan's opposition leader echoed those sentiments during the session, adding that there was insufficient transparency around the final cost. Several key world leaders, including Vice President Kamala Harris and Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese, are set to attend the event. A new report reveals the Chinese Communist regime is conducting massive DNA collection in Tibet, even in remote villages. Here are the details. A new report from Human Rights Watch. It says the Chinese
11: Communist regime is hugely boosting its DNA collection efforts in Tibet, something the New York-based organization says has been happening for a decade. The report came out on Monday. It says Chinese authorities are increasing DNA collection from residents throughout the Tibet autonomous region. Tibetan residential areas in a neighboring province are also getting similar treatment, spanning from cities to remote villages. The move targets residents five years old and up. In some areas, police are going door-to-door to collect DNA samples. Cooperation is mandatory, and blood samples are even being collected in kindergarten classrooms. Locals are told the efforts seeks to fight crime. But Human Rights Watch says it allows the Chinese regime to track and control individual Tibetans living there. Similar collection campaigns have also been carried out in other parts of China, especially in the Xinjiang region. That area is home to the
0: Uyghur ethnic group, who call it East Turkestan. Now we turn to Chinese lockdowns. In one city, thousands of residents came together to protest a lockdown mandate. The gathering may be the largest demonstration the city has seen in three years. NTD's Tiffany Meyer has that and more in today's China in Focus.
11: Several thousand residents in Wuhan city took to the streets protesting the local COVID-19 driven lockdown. The city's Penlongchen Economic Development Zone has been under lockdown for 10 days. Local residents said there are no virus cases in many of the area's residential compounds, yet they've been confined to their homes for days, with no end in sight. Some face losing their jobs as a result.
4: We have been under lockdown for about 10 days. Our community is under the most strict measures. Our community said that there was a positive case. Those who sell vegetables can still come into the area, but we can't stand the high prices.
11: Residents from at least four neighborhoods came out to protest. Online videos show a large number of police were deployed on site. After the protest, police made several arrests. The next day, the local Epidemic Prevention and Control Office issued a letter to residents saying control measures would be adjusted. The office did not give a specific time frame for lifting the lockdown.
0: A long line spotted in Shanghai, packed with people waiting to buy from a bakery. Other than the food, they say they're looking to fight against what they call local authorities' unfair punishment and return the favor of kindness they received during business lockdown orders. Let's take a look.
12: Authorities are slapping one Shanghai bakery with a fine for doing business during the city's extended COVID-19 lockdown this spring. But residents are pushing back. To show their support for the business, called Paris Baguette, locals are lining up to shop there and posting their tasty treats online. Many are also urging authorities to revoke the penalty. Paris Baguette is a Korean bakery chain. Shanghai authorities accused the store of, quote, producing goods in violation of city rules. They're making the business forfeited four days' worth of income and issued a fine valued at 10 times daily income. On the other hand, residents are calling Paris Baguette a company of conscience. That's because it offered to feed people at normal and fair prices during lockdown orders. That's compared to the city's officially designated group food purchases arranged by authorities. Prices for those goods were expensive, often multiple times higher than normal. Residents under lockdown had little choice but to buy from them anyway. Overall, Paris Baguette is facing nearly $95,000 in fines. But the incident seems to have garnered the company some good publicity.
0: Just ahead, U.K. Prime Minister Liz Truss is setting a cap on energy bills to try to manage the high prices. Her plan also includes temporarily suspending the green energy levy and lifting the ban on fracking. And more than 4,000 soldiers of different nations are currently training at a U.S. base in Europe. We hear from service members on how the exercise helps cooperation. Stay tuned for more right after the break. The UK's new prime minister announced that energy bills will be frozen at no more than 2,500 pounds or about 2,900 dollars annually for the average household. However, not everyone agrees with the move. NTD's Malcolm Hudson has more from London.
8: Average household energy bills will be capped at 2,500 pounds. Prime Minister Liz Truss announced this energy price guarantee within a package of other measures aiming to curb inflation and boost growth. But it's not without criticism. The package will be paid for with borrowing rather than the windfall tax Labour has repeatedly called for.
7: This guarantee, which includes a temporary suspension of green levies, means that from the 1st of October, a typical household will pay no more than £2,500 per year for each of the next two years while we get the energy market back on track.
8: Since the energy price cap was expected to rise to over £3,500, trust said this will save the average household £1,000 a year. This is in addition to the £400 energy bill discount already promised. So it comes out as an effective rise of just over £100 compared to the current cap of £1,971. The two-year plan will be paid for with tens of billions of pounds of borrowing. Much to criticism from Labour, Labour leader Sakir Starmer said the political question to the energy crisis is, who will pick up the bill? He has been calling for another windfall tax on oil and gas firms for months. But the prime minister is opposed to windfall taxes. She wants to leave these vast profits on the table with one clear and obvious consequence. The bill will be picked up by working people. Starmer said Truss's refusal to fund the energy support plan with the windfall tax was driven by Dogma. Support for businesses and non-domestic users like pubs, schools and hospitals is also outlined in Truss's plan. Their energy bills have been quoted with increases upwards of 500% because, unlike households, they have no energy price cap. Truss said these businesses will now be offered equivalent support via a six-month scheme. And as expected, Truss also ended England's ban on fracking. Fracking is the process of extracting shale gas by fracturing rocks with high-pressure water. This could see domestic shale gas production begin in as little as six months. But it will face heavy criticism from opponents who have long warned that fracking can cause earthquakes, water contamination, noise and traffic pollution. Truss told MPs that fracking would only go ahead in areas where there was local support for it. The trust hasn't detailed exactly how her energy plan will be paid for. So far, we know it's with borrowing and with tax cuts, such as pausing the green energy levy. But the Institute for Fiscal Studies faulted the lack of immediate transparency. Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng will give specifics during his emergency fiscal announcement later this month. Malcolm Hudson, NTD News, London.
0: Elsewhere in Europe, more than 4,000 NATO soldiers are currently training together in a multinational exercise. The drills are at an American military base in southern Germany. A U.S. Army colonel says it's an important opportunity to cooperate.
6: So one, there's, one the United States is never going to go into a crisis by ourselves. We're always going to have partners and allies with us.
0: The colonel says U.S. military personnel from all ranks benefit from exercises like this one where they can learn from each other. The exercise is held annually. This year, 14 nations are participating. An Army captain says it's not about testing gear, but learning about each other's tactics and the way different nations operate. In one drill, a cannon-like weapon is dropped out of an aircraft with a parachute. The idea is that personnel with parachutes can then jump after it and position it to be used for combat. Russians will be able to buy the new Apple iPhone 14. That's according to a senior Russian government official. The U.S. tech giant left the country earlier this year after the invasion of Ukraine. But Moscow's parallel import scheme means iPhones will likely still be available. Russia announced the scheme in March. It allows retailers to import products from abroad without the trademark owner's permission. A local mobile network says they're already selling the new iPhone 14 models on pre-order. Prices start at just under $1,400 compared to nearly $800 in the U.S. and around $1,000 in Germany. The network says delivery could take up to four months and it reserves the right to cancel orders if importing the products proves challenging. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at NTD.com. And still to come, shoplifting. It's illegal, right? A university magazine has published a guide on how to shoplift, and they're not taking it down. What supporters and critics are saying. A painting made entirely by artificial intelligence wins first prize in an art fair. The news is sparking debate over ethics and the future of art. Stay tuned for more after the break. Good to have you back with us. A student magazine in Australia is under fire for publishing a how-to guide on shoplifting. The
3: controversial article claims to help students tackle the rising cost of living. University of Queensland student magazine Semper Floriat published an article last week titled The Subtle Art of Shoplifting. It offers guidance on so-called free shopping, or what it calls thrifting, a legitimate action for the working class to take in ongoing class war. Students are told to aim for big companies and take what you need, or at least turn a blind eye. There are also suggestions for the best time and place to shoplift, as well as specific instructions for grocery stores and clothing chains. The article instructs readers to pick up a character when shoplifting. It can be a clumsy nerd dressed like an IT worker or a stressed parent with an upset child. Semper Floria closes by adding that it does not endorse illegal activity, but recognizes that breaking the law is sometimes a human right. This short guide has garnered massive attention and questions since its publication. The magazine's chief editor defended its position, claiming it helps hard done by students in a world where cost of living is on the rise. A Brisbane city councilman also argued that stealing is, quote, ethically justifiable for those in hard times. But Queensland Education Minister Grace Grace has condemned the article and asked for a retraction. She said, we simply can't have a situation where people are encouraged to commit criminal offenses. A game designer takes first
0: place in a fine arts competition, but he created his work entirely with an artificial
4: intelligence software. Let's take a look. Last week, artist Jason Allen sparked controversy by winning the top prize at the Colorado State Fair with his AI generated artwork, Theater the Opera Space Show. The work depicts three people in an otherworldly setting, silhouetted by a bright portal. Jason Allen is president of Incarnate Games a gaming company based in Colorado. Alan said the work was created by a software called MidJourney, a text-to-image AI system. With extensive training, such programs can generate images that match user-supplied text descriptions. MidJourney can be accessed through a Discord server. There, users display and exchange their own creations. The use of artificial intelligence to create art has generated a strong reaction on social media. Twitter user Omnimorpho wrote, We're watching the death of artistry unfold right before our eyes. Others have accused Alan of deception in the submission of his work. The judges may not have fully understood how the AI generator worked. The rules of the competition for the category Alan entered stated only Artistic practice that uses digital technology as part of the creative or presentation process. Alan wrote on Discord that he clearly stated that he created the work using MidJourney. But when another user asked him if he explained what the software was, Alan replied, quote, Should I have explained what MidJourney was? If so, why? The other user followed up by questioning whether the result would be different if the judges knew that AI produced the image. Alan defended his actions to the Chieftain newspaper in Pueblo, Colorado. In his words, I wanted to make a statement using artificial intelligence artwork. I feel like I accomplished that, and I'm not going to apologize for it. Coming up, we ask,
0: what does it take to create a masterpiece? Scans of an iconic painting reveal secrets hidden in the layers of paint. All that and more coming up on NTD News. (music) Secrets are hidden in the layers of an iconic painting by Vermeer. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details on what researchers have found in Amsterdam.
13: Johannes Vermeer's The Milkmaid draws the crowds at Amsterdam's Rijksmuseum. The painting will be part of a large exhibition here next year.
5: coming year, on the 10th of February, for the first time in history, 27 paintings by Vermeer will gather in the Rijksmuseum. This has never happened before, and it will never happen again. Vermeer only painted 35 works, more or less, and 27 will be here.
13: Vermeer's works are an important part of Dutch art history. The director of the Rijksmuseum says that's due to his unique style.
5: His paintings radiate this simplicity, this stillness, these brilliant colors. And I think the magic about Vermeers is that when you stand in front of a Vermeer in a museum around the world, wherever you are and you see one, you are kind of absorbed by it.
13: Researchers have been using the latest technology to look underneath the layers of paint of the milkmaid.
5: Vermeer just started with a composition which was much fuller than the composition we have now. Uh, The milkmaid stands there pouring milk uh, in front of a white plaster wall.
13: But scans show a sketch under the final layer of paint has a more cluttered backdrop.
10: So you can really follow how Vermeer started Uh, his composition, and you can see that he was really building it up more in light and dark tones.
13: Art historians say the sketches show Vermeer worked quickly and made adjustments as the work developed. The exhibition will open in February 2023. Andrew Thomas, NTD News.
0: Archaeologists in Indonesia have discovered evidence of the earliest known limb amputation. They believe it took place some 31,000 years ago. Archaeologists uncovered a skeleton in a cave on the island of Borneo. The lower left leg of the skeleton has been carefully removed. Bone regrowth shows the patient was a child at the time of the operation and survived for several years afterwards. Researchers estimate that the skeleton is 31,000 years old. They were able to determine that the surgeon had detailed knowledge of anatomy and the medical skills required to keep a patient alive. This latest discovery shows prehistoric medical treatment was far more advanced than previously thought. Before now, the oldest known amputation was found in a 7,000-year-old skeleton in France. That's all for today's program. We're really glad to have you with us. Please send us an email if you'd like to tell us something. We're going to put it on screen. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. I'm Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.